Mark Paul is an assistant professor and a member of the Climate Institute at Rutgers University. His research looks at the causes and effects of inequality and tries to work through some of the material remedies for inequality in the context of neoliberal capitalism. He's written a great deal on the climate crisis, focusing on economic pathways to crash decarbonization that also take into account the need for economic and environmental justice. His first book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights, was published in May of this year. This is now a moment where the existential threat of climate change is felt really intensely across the world. The remaining carbon budget for a 50% likelihood to limit global warming to 1.5, 1.7, and 2 degrees Celsius has dwindled in the years since the first COP in 1995. Assuming that our 2023 emissions levels continue at their current record-setting rate, and the Global Carbon Project has said that the total CO2 emissions in 2023 reached a disturbing 40.9 gigatons, we will burn through the budget for keeping global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2030. In 15 years, the carbon budget for 1.7 degrees Celsius will be gone too. In planetary terms, that's a split second. We need crash decarbonization now, because as Paul has pointed out, climate change is not a problem for future generations. It is a clear and present danger. So much time has been intentionally wasted, and due to that deadly strategy of delay, Paul says we now have four times the work to do to decarbonize the planet and dwindling time to do it in. A lot of the work within a capitalist economy is going to take the form of fighting for the appropriate level of investment. It makes all kinds of economic sense to phase out fossil fuels, and yet because the system has incubated and grown in the toxic stuff, we're stuck in it. Mark argues that if we wait just one decade more to really make the disruptive changes that are needed to decarbonize the fossil economy, we will quote, drive up the costs associated with decarbonization by 40 to 70%, which amounts to well over $3 trillion in additional costs. One of the questions I had to ask him though, was why is this such a hard sell? It often feels Sisyphean to try to communicate projected losses in a system that demands and yet resists change. So how do we frame it in a resonant sort of way? How do we dislodge the presentist attachment to the status quo? There are some answers in this interview and obviously some real questions remaining. Some of it centers on the question of growth, which Mark seems to feel is often the wrong question. Shrinking the economy, he suggests, needs to be taken seriously from the perspective of its social costs. I'm sympathetic to that because there is the political problem of ensuring that a mass mobilization for climate action doesn't leave people behind. So for that reason, we also spend time talking about the divisive ways that putting a price on carbon has been tried and some of the ways it could be done progressively. He says that a simple carbon tax is, as a form of a consumption tax, very regressive. It's going to unfairly hit low-income people harder when it should be a luxury tax that targets the wealthy specifically. On this point, I would quote Alexis Shotwell's book Against Purity, where she writes that the world must be shared and with the non-human parts of this world maybe especially. She says that the world in fact, quote, offers finite freedom, adequate abundance, modest meaning, and limited happiness. Partial, finite, adequate, modest, limited. And yet, she says, worth working on, with, and for.
to quote something that you've uh, co-authored, you write actually that during the past two centuries, fossil fuels have allowed for impressive industrialization and high levels of economic growth. However, the extraction of these fuel sources, of course, has devastated the environment that many communities depend on, and their combustion is responsible for the climate crisis. Um, and so that leads us to this place where, um, you know, the climate crisis is demanding that we kind of end our entanglement with uh, fossil fuels. And, you know, of course, that's easier said than done. And it feels to me like what you're trying to offer is like a framework for thinking about it otherwise economically. Um, and so, yeah, in that same piece, Decarbonizing the U.S. Economy, this big report that you co-authored, you say, contrary to orthodox theory, the U.S. economy is not operating at its maximum productive potential even. Um, there's a great deal of unused capacity uh, that a major public investment program could mobilize. Um, so I just wondered if you could kind of help us reckon with um, the kind of, yeah, orthodox theory, as you describe it there, the policy or orthodoxy that sort of for whatever reason, presumes that the fossil fueled economy is necessarily running at maximum capacity. Like, why do we assume that? And how do we reimagine or reassess that assumption? Um, just to, to back up for a moment, you know, I, I do just want to reiterate, as you just highlighted, you know, that, you know, the fossil fuel economy um, has led to tremendous improvements in human well-being, right? I mean, uh, if we just look at where average life expectancy was pre-industrial revolution to where we are today, you know, the gains are just astronomical. If we just look at, for instance, the tens of millions pulled out of poverty in China alone over the past few decades, the gains are just, and, and human well-being are just tremendous. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we need to, you know, in particular, be deeply appreciative of the workers who have put, literally put their bodies on the line you know, time and time again to extract energy from our planet and to, you know, feed our, our you know, need to, to develop and grow as a global community. Um, and, you know, in particular, you know, a lot of these fossil fuel jobs are dangerous jobs, coal mining being perhaps one of the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is today, what we often see is that, you know, thinking about fossil fuel jobs as good jobs. And one thing I just want to highlight before you know, getting into your question is that, you know, it's important for us to ask why a particular job is a good job or a bad job. You know, fossil fuel jobs are not inherently good. The reason, you know, many fossil fuel jobs are quote unquote good jobs here in the United States isn't because they're lovely jobs. It isn't because they are, you know, jobs that people inherently enjoy. It isn't because they are jobs that have no health risks. Because workers organized, formed unions, and engaged in class struggle to ensure they reap some of the benefits from engaging in this extremely dirty extractive labor. Mm -hmm. And I just want to highlight that because, you know, I, I think often the fossil fuel sector is rightly vilified um, and blamed for the crisis we find ourselves in today. And I just want us to, to be sure that we separate that from the workers who are simply trying to, to provide themselves with livelihoods and also provide us with necessary energy. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that said, you know, we've learned and known certainly since my lifetime that fossil fuels, you know, generate 
uh, more than energy. They generate pollution and they generate greenhouse gas emissions that directly leads to planetary warming and ocean acidification, uh, which you know we, we essentially today uh, call climate change um, or the climate crisis. Now, thankfully, uh, we have done a tremendous amount of research and development and essentially have the vast majority of the technology we need to decarbonize incredibly quickly. Um, however, you know, for political reasons, and, and I think this is really important, I, I think the main hurdle here is political hurdles. We have chosen, you know, not to transition our economy, you know, away from fossil fuels to this point. Now, one of the key arguments in terms of why that is, is, is people saying it would be too expensive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the rationale is what, you, you know, is based on the point you brought up, which is, you know, the economy is operating at full capacity. The economy is operating perfectly efficiently with every factory, every human gainfully employed, doing the best work they possibly could, with the exception of this one small pesky market failure that we call, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, we know this is just absolutely wild. You know, I teach actually a graduate course on the economics and policy of the climate crisis. And my students asked me, you know, they looked at the data and they said, okay, there's 7 million Americans unemployed today. Why is it that in, when I read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, you know, everything says we're at quote full employment, 7 million Americans doesn't equate to full employment to me. This is a, literally a question I got from my students last week. And, mm. and, you know, it's right. If you just take a step back and think about it as a human being, 7 million unemployed Americans is 7 million unemployed Americans. It's not full employment. It's not ensuring everybody who wants a job has one. But the basic economic assumption is that the, you know, is that, you know, roughly four or 5% unemployment is quote unquote full employment, but that, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's really, um, you know, a, a, a way to ensure that we maintain, you know, a substantial portion of the population out of a job and in turn main, ensure that we maintain, you know, workers being too weak to properly bargain for, you know, excellent working conditions and excellent pay and things along those lines. And so mm -hmm. if it were true that we have a lot of resources idle in our economy, or not even that they're idle, that they're, you know, underproductive. So you could just imagine transitioning somebody from a worker at McDonald's flipping burgers to doing a more productive job in society, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, in fact, we could engage in, you know, government debt financed investment to help us transition away from fossil fuels. And we can reduce our emissions while simultaneously generating jobs and improving, you know, human well-being here in the United States. Um, and that's actually where you see, you know, discussions around the Green New Deal and, and Inflation Reduction Act, for that matter, you know, um, you know, engaging with, really changing the conversation from what I used to call, you know, conversations around climate austerity that we used to all have to tighten our belts and all sacrifice to help address climate change to what we see today, where, you know, actually we can all have electric vehicles and high quality public transit that is more enjoyable. And we can have more jobs and better jobs and safer jobs um, at the same time. 
you know, so we really can generate economic opportunity and a cleaner, healthier, more stable environment and, and create this win-win situation. Now, now the hard part is yeah. not everybody wins, right? Fossil capital doesn't win. You know, you started asking about fossil capitalism and, and that's precisely why I think we haven't acted. It's because fossil capital is powerful mm-hmm. and they have a tremendous amount of sway in Washington and they ensure that we do not, you know, come out, you know, solar panels blazing and decarbonize as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. This is the situation. And I definitely want to talk about the specific power of the fossil fuel industry and how you write about that power and how to kind of break it. Um, But I wanted to pick up on this idea that, you know, I, I hear you kind of pointing to that unemployment in some ways is like part of a neoliberal orthodoxy. Um, and you write about neoliberalism extensively as a specific model of freedom within a free market fundamentalist kind of, um, ideology. Um, but this interesting claim in, in one essay where you talk about like, um, how neoliberal policies promote competition, not solidarity is interesting to me. You, you kind of suggest that like that implies a level of blindness, like that, there's a neoliberal blindness that um, explains even potentially uh, certain economists' disagreement with climate, climate scientists about the goals of climate policy. But I just wanted to quote this section where you say, at one point, prominent ec- economists argue that it would be optimal for the planet to warm more than 3.5 degrees Celsius on the basis of integrative assessment models. The, uh, the claim to balance the trade-off between the cost of mitigating emissions with the benefit of a more stable climate. Um, and this is like, this is the, in part from the work of a Nobel laureate, William Nordhaus. It, it's, it's staggering to me, but the idea that according to Nordhaus's calculations, putting a price on carbon to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is simply not feasible, not feasible. So like, what is the basis of that neoliberal blindness and how can it mortgage mortgage the future to like a catastrophic level of warming? Um, but it's part of the calculation. I wondered if you could kind of speak to that. Yeah. You know, I, this is something that I think people also have a really hard time reckoning with, which is the difference between the recommendations coming out of mainstream economics in terms of what we should do about climate change and you know the difference between what's coming out of the scientific community now taking a step back here for a moment you know i I want to acknowledge that we are a signatory of the paris climate accords and what the global community agreed upon there is to limit warming to you know at at most 2c and do everything possible to limit it to 1.5c above pre-industrial levels now what that tells me is we already have our goal what we need to do is do everything technically and economically feasible to meet that goal. Mm-hmm. Despite that, what mainstream economists, people like Bill Nordhaus, who won a Nobel Prize for his work in economics um, on the economics of the climate uh, of climate change, you know, say is not only that we should allow the planet to warm by three point five C by the end of this century, but indeed we should allow it to warm by four C by the middle of the next century. That is what hell on earth yeah, yeah. according it's to the united nations secretary general it is completely unimaginable yeah. completely yeah. unimaginable and you know 
Why is that? It's because he uses a model that does a terrible job at representing reality. It's not because that is what the best economics tells us. It is because that is what a toy model that he created spits out when you make a bunch of irrational assumptions that do a very poor job of reflecting the real world. That's all. That's it. And so if you ask me, let's throw that out. Let's stop paying attention to it. And let's take the Paris Climate Accords as our necessary starting point and then think about, okay, how is it that we best reach this target? And that's the conversation we need to be having right now. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that said, you know, why do economists say this? I mean, it comes back to what I was mentioning earlier. Economists basically, even people like Bill Nordhaus, who, you know, I don't know him personally, but I do believe he cares about climate change. And this is what's even crazier to think about. Here's a human who has dedicated their life to understanding the economics of climate change and appears to care about the issue. Yet they think we should allow the planet to warm to, you know, 3.5 to 4C, um, which would, you know, at, at that level of warming, you know, most of Florida is literally gone. Most of the mm-hmm. entire co- country of Bangladesh is literally underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, m- many, you know, New York City would be, you know, uninhabitable as it is today. Um, So, so the, the degree of global change from that level of warming is just catastrophic, but it's, it's not properly captured in their models. And so their models lead them to the wrong answers. And so I don't think they're helpful or useful models for us to rely on. I think the key question for me is what are, you know, given the Paris climate accords, given, you know, our targets, what are the appropriate, you know, policy tools for us to engage in a program of crash decarbonization that simultaneously continues to improve living standards, in particular for environmental justice communities and for historically economically disadvantaged communities. Mm -hmm. I like this concept of crash decarbonization. Like, What does it mean to exist in a place of actual urgency in relationship to the climate emergency to underline the now in acting on climate now? Um, and not necessarily sort of uh, abandon climate action, it feels like, to the market. Uh, There's a point at which you say the impending costs remain largely ignored due to their long-term projections and the blind faith put into markets to turn things around in time. Um, Absolutely. Like, I just 100% agree. And I wanted to kind of pick up on this problematization of long-term projection of costs, as it seems like that's like a central challenge. Um, You know, you say uh, that waiting just one additional decade to act rather than starting now will drive up the costs associated with decarbonization by 40 to 70 percent, which amounts to well over three trillion dollars in additional costs. So like I've seen so many projections like this, and yet the communication part of it seems to be part of what's really difficult. Um, And I wondered if you could kind of relate any experiences you've had in kind of developing tools of communication, like that, that try to overcome the fact that speaking to long-term projections economically is kind of a hard sell. You know, I think in general, it's a failure of people's imagination. I think people are so, and when I say people, I don't think that this is everyday people. I think that this is largely, you know, the, the economic wonk class that has a tremendous amount of sway in Washington, whether this is, you know, we're talking about the people at the Congressional Budget Office um, who actually score legisl- you know, climate legislation that gets put in front of Congress or, 
or you know uh, people within the the large powerful think tanks that um, have a tremendous amount of sway on the hill in DC. You know, mm-hmm. I think people are so stuck in their you know neo neoliberal worldview that all we need to do is put a modest price on carbon and the market will fix everything. That is hard for them to, you know, think creatively about actually the exciting opportunities that this terrifying climate crisis presents us to reconfigure you know, our economy in ways that does a better job centering human well-being and human flourishing as opposed to short-term profit motives primarily for polluting industries. And, you know, I've seen this lack of imagination firsthand. I was at a dinner a few years ago with a very senior previous Obama official. And at that dinner, a senior um, campaigner for Sunrise, the Sunrise Movement, asked them, you know, okay, Let's just say we have a trillion dollars to invest to address the climate crisis. Where do we start? And this very senior official from the Obama administration said, I don't know. It would just be wasteful. There's nowhere the government should be investing right now. And that to me is just insane and shows, I think, the the true failures. Now, that said, I think that the Inflation Rejection Act has shown how far we've come in a very short period of time. You know, something like the IRA could not, would not have happened without groups like Sunrise and, you know, the the huge debates around the Green New Deal. I mean, the IRA essentially is a mini Green New Deal. Is it enough? Absolutely not. The way I think about this is a down payment on addressing our needs to fight the climate crisis. Um, But it is very true that if you, you know, talk to the want class that what is, you know, what passed in the IRA is absolutely not what economists would have recommended. Um, You know, people like Jason Furman, uh, who was uh, President Obama's uh, chief economist in the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, has has fairly openly, you know, called a lot of that spending wasteful. I, I mean, I think he's dead wrong. And I think there's very strong evidence to highlight why he's dead wrong. Um, how you know the, the evidence in particular is important here to think about the government's role in not only fixing markets, you know, fixing market failures, but in actually creating and directing markets to serve social ends. And that's exactly what something like the Inflation Reduction Act tries to do. Now, you know, keep in mind the IRA was a compromise bill. It's you know far less than what President Biden initially proposed in Build Back Better, and President mm-hmm. Biden, of course, was proposing far less than. Um, you know, more, more courageous climate champions that were running for the Oval Office, people like Jay Inslee, Senator Bernie Sanders, and others. And so things have been continuously whittled down to to less than what we need. Um, yet, um, you know, yet here we are. Here we are, right? And um, I think it's important to remember that as the authors of uh, a recent book called The End of This World, Climate Justice and So-Called Canada put it, there's not a point after which um, sort of hope is lost. Um, This is where uh, I really appreciate your emphasis on the kind of key victories of the Sunrise Movement. What I wanted to ask, though, is for people that um, need a little bit of inspiration to be reminded of the fact that like there is of course, like a, a moment here where the Inflation Reduction Act is is a piece of legislation that literally like requires 
the government to issue new oil and gas leases. And that feels like an enormous failure that there is not a point after which hope is lost. Like if you could um, give people a sense of what the most accessible way that they can kind of learn about uh, maybe how movements have learned about the economics of climate change and climate action. Like what is it about the sunrise movement movement, for example, strategically that shows um, the ability to kind of influence positive, uh, you know, positive or progressive policy change from your perspective. You know, I think, I think it's really interesting here because I think that movements have led economics rather than economics leading movements. You know, often I think, you know, we have this idea and as an economist, I would love to believe this in some ways that, you know, my, my wonderful white papers that I publish are what go out there and convince you know, convince people that we need an investment-led approach to decarbonization. But but in reality, it's, it's a little bit of the other way around. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing is that people realize that, you know, the, the politics of simple, you know, a carbon pricing approach to addressing the climate crisis just wasn't going to work. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, I, I do want to know, I am an advocate of carbon pricing, if done well. I think it is a important part of the climate policy toolkit, again, with a huge caveat, if done well, um, and we can get more into that if you're interested later. Um, but, you know, I, I think people saw that, you know, okay, the U.S. has chronic unemployment, chronic underinvestment. Um, you know, you're not going to carbon price your way into generating an electric vehicle industry. You're not going to carbon price your way into generating high quality carbon free public transportation or decarbonizing public schools. You know, these things necessitate public investment. And so uh, I think a lot of the change in economics came out of the failure of neoliberalism to do two things. One is to actually, you know, meaningfully address the climate crisis, you know, whether that be you know, simply through carbon pricing um, in action or just the failure of being able to adopt carbon pricing due to people's, you know, opposition to taxes. Um, But also I think it came out of people's, you know, broader frustration with how the economy was running, particularly following the 2008 financial crisis and seeing that, you know, quote unquote, you know, free market capitalism was an utter failure and that, you know, to, to both provide you know, jobs for people and also to provide good jobs um, and to provide investments that will bring widespread social benefits. We need government to play a larger role in the market. And I think these are the things that led people to, you know, really work towards that vision of the Green New Deal or that vision that became the Inflation Reduction Act, where we have a much more holistic approach from government, um, both engaging with civil society, but most importantly, you know, heavily investing across sectors of the economy to work towards a new green economy of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, my hope is that as you rightly said, like, you know, we have the technologies, we have, um, you know, uh, massive kind of documents and analyses of the type that you've helped produce, um, that give us like a roadmap, so to speak. Um, what we require, it feels like is a, a kind of revolution in our political culture to some extent. And, my hope is that that is like happening. Um, but I think like not a missing piece, but an important piece is this sort of um, policy or financial literacy element of, of climate action. Um, and so, you know, this is something I wanted to kind of really dig into lately. Um, 
in part because, you know, I live in Nova Scotia where carbon pricing has just sort of come online and it is divisive. It's affecting elections. Um, and so, like, I want to get to the bottom of it, like discursively. What is the discourse that determines where people land in relationship to the economics of climate action? Like, what are the tools that policymakers use to imagine a way out of just the infrastructure of incineration that we've produced through fossil capital? And I like this, you know, line in one of your your reports where you say that uh, you and your co-authors believe that decarbonization can be done in an equitable, rapid, and in fact, pro-growth way if we deploy a three-pillar approach, one that uses the entire range of policy tools available to us. One, large-scale public investments. Two, com- comprehensive regulations to ensure car- decarbonization across the board. Uh, and three, a cap and dividend system that puts a price on carbon while offsetting the regressive effects on income distribution because it hits low-income people quite hard uh, if not done right. Um, so, you know, that that's like, you know, <laughs> there's a lot in that sentence, of course, um, but it, it gives us a lot to build from, uh, I think, from a policy perspective. And, you know, I'm interested in hearing you unpack that, but specifically sort of in relationship to the kind of reductive, in some ways, debate that has uh, developed over the last several years around like green growth versus degrowth. Um, Because, you know, you're saying it's kind of both and that like you can actually decarbonize in a pro-growth way suggests almost like a form of degrowth that happens without overthrowing capitalism um, from my perspective. So I guess to frame it in a form of a question or two questions, is de-emphasizing growth so socially and politically naive? Is it impossible to shrink the economy without creating hardship, unrest, disenchantment, um, and so on? You know, I, in general, I, I tend to sidestep this question. And, and the reason is because I don't think it's the right or the most important question for us to focus on, particularly um, when we consider, you know, low and middle income countries, and particularly when we consider that here in the United States, we still have 40 million people living in poverty, um, and another 100 million people, you know, living one small hiccup, you know, whether that be an illness or a, a job loss away from, from, from poverty. And so, you know, given the degree of economic deprivation, both here in the U.S. and and globally, I think that it's imperative that we continue to focus on how we improve the human condition. Now, that said, do I think that growth maps perfectly onto improving human condition? No, absolutely not. And, you know, but if you ask me, do we need more good growth? Do we need to continue focusing on improving healthcare and education and housing? Absolutely, we need that. Um, but is it also true that we might need to, you know, shrink and, and most importantly, eliminate some sectors of the economy, like the fossil fuel sector? Absolutely. So I think, you know, what we need to focus on is is what I think of as good growth, um, you know, growth that actually provides, you know, quality lives for, you know, all people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not willing to abandon growth, but I'm also not willing to follow growth blindly. You know, it's a, it's just a more nuanced conversation of growth versus degrowth. I think that that just you know leads us to a lot of false truths and to a lot of you know 
black and white pictures that just do not properly represent the complex world in which we all inhabit. So for me, you know, this is about how do we grow the green economy? How do we ensure those are high quality union jobs? How do we ensure that all people have access to, you know, clean energy and clean air? I mean, just thinking about clean air for a moment, 250,000 Americans die every year from pollution associated with combusting fossil fuels. More than 8 million people globally die from the pollution from combusting fossil fuels. You know, let's talk about how we improve not only, you know, both human well-being, which is most importantly just by providing people with life, uh, but also, you know, economic productivity. It's making sure people live and that they're healthy. Um, and so there are just so many areas I think we will gain from when we transition, you know, as we continue to transition away from fossil fuels. And for me, the most pressing questions are how do we do it better, more equitably and faster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I just, you know, this is this is what I'm getting out of your work is that um, it is working like within the terms that are used, but it's providing like um, a way out of being kind of mired in those terms. Like you're not unconcerned with questions of ethics, human flourishing, thriving. Like, and that to me is kind of what's refreshing <laughs> to some extent about reading. Uh, work that focuses on the economics of climate action. It uh, doesn't throw those things uh, aside. It says that those are kind of at the core in many ways of the push for decarbonization. And like to kind of um, build a little bit from that, you you talk about like um, the destruction of physical assets is a crucial part of the struggle. Um, and I, I'm curious like about the, you know, because we don't, we have, not historically thought of like clean air as a physical asset, right? That's just this negative externality or whatever. Um, and so, you know, using the language of physical assets is, it seems to me, a kind of rhetorical or political um, calculation on some level that is about justifying policy measures that are about like protecting nature. Um, I had a conversation a little while ago uh, from uh, with someone from this uh, insurance company Intact, where you know she talked about how this long history of regarding nature as priceless has reduced it to being worthless, um, and it's about a kind of stressing of that that worth that nature fundamentally has. I think, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you know, I wondered if you wanted to kind of speak to that either from a personal or political level. And that idea of like giving the planet the best chance possible to me, it's like about, you know, giving the planet agency in this, this struggle as well. Like recognizing that the planet, these natural assets, like they do things for us. Yeah. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first I just, you know, I I do want to highlight that, you know, I think traditional economics has really led us astray by focusing but by the lack of engagement with, you know, focusing on hum- basic humanity and ensuring people have what they need to live, you know, flourishing lives. What's really what's promised in our Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's what everybody wants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, instead we've built a system that is exclusively focused on the profit motive and has that, you know, substantially improved our capabilities to produce more stuff, you know, you bet. Um, But I think we are at a juncture where, you know, it's really important for us to, 
to think much more carefully about what we're producing, how we're producing, why we're producing, um, and, and really how to reorganize our economy and society to, 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 to focus on human beings rather than to focus on the profit motive. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, and, and this is in part why I think it's uh, just politically smart to, um, you know, focus on the generating of jobs. Like that is a thing that people, it, we have to look at the data, care about first and foremost, like above climate action. They're deeply, deeply concerned about um, how slow governments are are moving um, on climate policy, but like they're primarily concerned about cost of living. Um, and why wouldn't they be right? So if we can, um, you know, combine the two things, then you get to a place where, um, you know, you're kind of talking about things that people support uh, in massive numbers. Like this speaks to the kind of history you provide, um, of yeah, like public policy, giving us a means out of particular crises. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask about that, like, how you write about the ways in which we can um, respond to crises. So you use the precedent at one point, for example, of nationalizing industries during, um, you know, the world wars, especially maybe world war two. Um, you talk about like bans uh, that have, you know, uh, uh, led to a kind of safeguarding of human life, whether it's like a ban on CFCs or a ban on like tobacco, uh, et cetera. Like a lot of this nonetheless feels about like it's about, um, you know, defamiliarizing or shaking up our socialized relationship uh, to, you know, convenience and and a certain organization of space in especially the global north. And, and this revolution is going to come by sort of, you know, rehabituating or dehabituating that, I think, um, those attachments. And yet we're largely focused on kind of maintaining the structure as it is and just changing the energy inputs, it feels like. Yeah. That is to kind of ask the question um, of whether or to what extent um, phasing, out, phasing out fossil fuels is in some ways fundamentally different from uh, responding to a war, like an immediate threat, or different in some ways from like banning tobacco, a thing that you don't necessarily need, right? Like the fossil fuel economy is this thing that a lot of people can't think their way around. So how do you kind of try and provide a vision of a life without those things that also like lowers energy usage, energy needs, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to not frame that in terms of sacrifice. Um, and so I wondered if you could kind of, yeah, speak to certain precedents, uh, uh, regulations that have largely improved, um, you know, quality of life and whether there are some like gaps in terms of the analogy to past struggles. This is such a, you know, it, important question here that you're raising and one that you know where i think that you know the degrowth advocates actually are helpful to agree in terms of you know they interject in this conversation that we do need to seriously rethink how we organize you know society and to what ends now you know as i mentioned earlier i don't think that necessitates reducing growth and, and most importantly, reducing human well-being. But I do think it necessitates us really rethinking and being far more intentional about how and why, you know, we structure our economy and our lives. So just mm -hmm. to give you an example, though, you know, 
I disagree a little bit with the sacrifice framing. Mm-hmm. I think we can and should do things better. That doesn't necessitate a whole ton of sacrifice, but does necessitate us making change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right now, for example, you know, in the United States, you have a lot of people that want to live in what they what are called 15-minute cities, you know, fairly urban uh, areas that, you know, where you can walk to most of your amenities. You know, the idea, they call it a 15-minute city because you can walk to, you know, most of your basic necessities, public transit, mm-hmm. a grocery store, a pharmacy, a coffee shop, you know, importantly, your neighborhood bar, let's be real, uh, within within 15 minutes. Right. It sounds lovely to me. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, mm-hmm. I am privileged to live in central New Jersey where I have everything minus a grocery store within 15 minutes of me. Um, and the quality of life is tremendous. Now, does that mean I do not have, you know, it, it does mean that I don't have a 2,500 square foot, you know, McMansion. Um, but we live mm-hmm. in a lovely town home that is plenty of space for us. And, you know, we are able to be a one car household, which saves us a ton of money and a ton of headache because we can walk and bike everywhere. And, you know, we just need our car to go to the grocery store and to go on weekend excursions. And that doesn't feel like a sacrifice. To me, this feels like a high quality of life. And so, so you know, and this is why we need government-led planning and investments to make things like that feasible. So for an example, you know, yes, we can provide EV tax credits like the Inflation Reduction Act does, you know, but what we really need to do is a massive build-out of carbon-free, fare-free public public, uh, transportation so that, you know, people are more connected and that people can get around on high quality public transit and enjoy themselves reading a book or listening to a podcast rather than Mm -hmm. driving all the time. You know, driving is not enjoyable. We do it because we have to. Um, And, and so I think that that again, to me, doesn't scream sacrifice that to me screams reorganization of, of our lived experience and, and thinking more intentionally about, about Mm -hmm. how and, and why we, you know, organize our our day-to-day lives yeah and honestly i think it leads to um, a kind of renewed appreciation um, for community you're kind of just trying to survive when you're driving um there is a level of competitiveness to it um yeah i think there's a lot of potential there in terms of kind of communicating uh the yeah benefits of trying to divorce yourself from, um, you know, especially this kind of single occupancy, isolated and individualist experience of driving a car. Um, a lot of potential there. And I think a lot of potential too, in, you know, meeting people where they are when they can't divorce themselves from the car, right? Like you, you talk about how a transition to EVs is vital, uh, but that the most cost-effective way to decarbonize transportation is, of course, as you say, moving to mass transit, making it like free and electrified, ideally, cycling, walking, active transportation. Um, but the key thing is like, you know, there is, and I'm seeing this uh, locally, it's like hard to pitch the business case for EV fast charging infrastructure. Like you do need public institutions in order to put that in place to address the anxiety that people have sometimes called range anxiety uh, around like EV adoption. Like where are we at in terms of the push for electric vehicles and where do you see governments demanding this sort of policy shift toward facilitating like public charging infrastructure, et cetera? 
Yeah. You know, I, th- I think we are at a really exciting juncture right now. Uh, you know, electric vehicles are taking off quite rapidly here in the United States. You know, the, the growth has just been absolutely tremendous. And actually, when you look at the data, what we see is that in terms of sales, internal combustion engine vehicles, traditional gas cars have already peaked. All mm-hmm. new sale growth is in electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, really exciting. And it's precisely why you see when you watch, you know, the Super Bowl or something, it's precisely why you see everybody falling over themselves to share their EV commercial, you know, every car company, um, mm-hmm. because they're fighting for this new market share. And they realize that the future is electric vehicles. You know, even even the future of trucks is electric vehicles. You know, I mean, um, when, when you talk to, um, you know, construction workers, I mean, what Ford has done with the Ford Lightning or what Rivian has done is, is quite outstanding in terms of providing a, a really high quality, um, you know, work truck um, mm. that just provides, you know, workers that actually need trucks. I'm not talking about truck hobbyists with, you know, the functionality that they really need, particularly on, you know, construction jobs and, and more remote work areas. No. Mm. You know, the government, rightly in the Inflation Reduction Act, is investing quite heavily in build out of the charging infrastructure. Um, and they also, you know, recently made a deal with Tesla to open up Tesla's electric vehicle charging network uh, to non Tesla owners, which I, I think is, you know, exciting. What, would I prefer to have seen something different? Maybe, you know, perhaps the nationalization of, of Tesla's EV charging network? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that that infrastructure should be, be, you know, more public infrastructure in order to bring benefits, you know, to the public rather than, again, solely rely on the profit motive. Um, mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I think it's, it's really the area of decarbonization that we're, you know, poised to do the best in over the next decade. Um, you know, people are realizing electric cars are reliable, are actually, particularly when you think about the five-year cost of ownership cost. Um, and are uh, fun, you know, they really are. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really encouraged by, you know, the transition we're seeing underway with electric vehicles. Um, yeah, I mean, me too. Uh, there, there's like um, a part of me that sort of is suspicious of the kind of um, the need to to market like electric electric SUVs and trucks to people that maybe want them not necessarily for utility reasons but for like status reasons like the the history of the SUV is obviously very fraught there was an effort by i guess auto the auto industry to market larger vehicles by sort of making the SUV feel sexy by associating it basically with a kind of militaristic masculinity and these kinds of things like it's it's fraught i think from a cultural perspective um, but if we did shift toward, especially relatively small EVs, it would mean uh, at least a sort of armistice in our extractivist war on nature uh, that has been really driven by fossil fuels. And so I, I think there's like a little bit of a gap between the renewable, um, you know, the renewable push that we're seeing, uh, which is so kind of market based and the kind of the renewable push that we need which is that shift based on kind of like science and making sure that we're attacking the social license of fossil fuels, you know? What would it mean in the current moment from your perspective to, to use your term, tame the corporate power of fossil fuels, to rein in um, corporate power in that specific sector 
um, you know, what what actually needs to happen to move away fundamentally from this incredibly destructive industry? What are the levers, as we sometimes like to say, that we can pull in order to actually like break the power of the fossil fuel industry culturally and politically? Yeah, I, I think this is a fantastic question for us to wrap up our conversation on here today because you know, as an economist, what I can you know say is at the end of the day, addressing our climate change uh, problem that we're in the midst of to here today is not one of solving the economics. It's not one of solving the technology. We've largely done those things. It's one of solving the political power problem where the fossil fuel industry and those who benefit directly from it have far too much sway over Congress. And in turn, that is precisely what has prevented climate action. Climate action is not too expensive. We know it would bring tremendous economic benefits. What is too expensive is continuing on the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that we don't have the technology. We have the technology in place to decarbonize 90% of the economy in the last 10%. I am fully confident uh, we will have the technology to do so as we, as we, you know, speed our way towards decarbonization in the coming years. It is purely at this point a political problem where we need to sever the political power of the fossil fuel industry. And I wrote a paper on this with some colleagues where we looked at the idea of nationalizing the fossil fuel industry as a way to eliminate the power of fossil capital once and for all in our political system. Mm. And I firmly believe that that is a legal, a viable, and a powerful path forward for us to take collective ownership over the fossil fuel industry, engage in a managed wind down of that industry where we prioritize the well-being of fossil fuel workers and environmental justice communities and mm -hmm. you know, do so in a, a you know, controlled way so we're not throwing fossil fuel workers and fossil fuel communities at the bottom of the coal ash pile again as we have historically. So I think that is the way forward, but you know, there, there is not going to be a true transition until we reckon with the power of the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. And this is why you say just flatly, the time has come for the US government to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. And I just, yeah, I really appreciate the, the analysis, the kind of systems level analysis that your work provides. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for talking to me. This has been, um, this has been a workout, but a, in a good way. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you giving me your time today. It's been a pleasure. You have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much.